Welcome to the Oriel Audiobook, 200 Years of Healthcare at St Pancras. In this short audiobook, we'll be taking you through a history of medical care on the site of Oriel, a new state-of-the-art eye care research and education centre. A joint initiative between Moorfields Eye Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust, UCL Institute of Ophthalmology and Moorfields Eye Charity. Workhouses were established to support the poor, but also as a way to deter people from taking advantage of the state. Consequently, so-called inmates often ended up doing repetitive tasks or hard labour. It was during the 19th century that workhouses got their modern reputation as dingy, overcrowded and an awful place to be. Archaeologists have discovered some surprisingly intact remains from the workhouse, especially from the first parts that were built back in 1809. We can now reconstruct and imagine what it was like to live and move around in these buildings. If you decided to visit the building, you would start at the main entrance just off the St Pancras Way. Turn to your right and you'll be walking towards the Masters and Matrons rooms. The master runs the workhouse and the matron is in charge of the female inmates. You might notice that you're walking on a very nice floor. Below you are very expensive stone slabs of Yorkstone, which show how much money was invested in this area of the workhouse. While in this area of the building, you might notice three steps going down into a darker room. The expensive stone slabs change to a brick floor, a clear change to the much cheaper material. The wall is also bare bricks, and all the bricks are covered in coal soot. This is unsurprising as it was probably where the coal was stored, and you're in one of the seven identical rooms with the same soot-covered brick. If you were to leave the coal stall, walk back towards where you came in, and then kept going to the other side of the workhouse, you might start to find the wards where workhouse residents lived. In this area, you'll find rooms opening off a corridor. If you went into one of these rooms, you'd find a few metal twin beds inside. This is probably one of the female ward rooms. The walls are plastered and painted a bright blue. On the opposite wall to the door is a medium-sized fireplace. You would have felt the heat coming from the burning coal, making this room a comfortable temperature. You go out the door and down to the next room, which is almost identical to the first. The same size, same paints, same fireplace. Does this description of the workhouse surprise you? Warm, bright rooms and expensive paving in the corridors don't match up to our normal vision of a workhouse. Thanks to stories passed down and fiction like Oliver Twist, we normally think of workhouses as dirty, dangerous, overcrowded places with poor living conditions. This was the case in many workhouses, including St Pancras Workhouse, at different times. However, our tour of the workhouse, when it was first built, reminds us that the story of this workhouse isn't simple. In fact, St Pancras Workhouse didn't just act as a place for people to live and work, it was a major healthcare provider. The first infirmary was added in 1812, and by the 1860s, it had the same number of patients as many major London hospitals at the time. So who were the people who lived, worked, and were treated in these rooms and corridors? What were their names? What was life like for them?
medical care in a workhouse. We don't know much about the care at St Pancras workhouse early on, but in many workhouses, nurses were just healthier inmates before the 1880s. The memoir of Joseph Rogers, who was a medical officer at the Strand Workhouse in London, describes in detail his difficulties in providing adequate medical care in the 1850s and 1860s. He had a lot of opposition to his attempts to increase the size of the sick wards, to reduce overcrowding, and all of the nurses were inmates from the workhouse until he got a single paid nurse in 1865. In the 1850s, major concerns were raised about living conditions and the quality of medical care at St Pancras. Changes were eventually made with the hiring of paid medical staff in the 1860s and the addition of large extensions in the 1880s. In 1865, the Lancet did a study of London's workhouses and in their review of St Pancras noted that the population of the sick wards were equivalent to the size of other London hospitals at over 1,000 patients. Their findings were mixed and they were especially critical of the fact that there were only two medical officers or doctors for the entire workhouse. Thanks to the 1881 census, we actually have names for everyone living at St Pancras workhouse in that year. This includes the name of the master, a Thomas Miller, who lived and worked in those nicer rooms with the York stone floors. It also records the 25 people who were paid officers of the workhouse, and many of them worked in the infirmary or sick wards. By this point, the workhouse had multiple sick wards and provided medical care for the local community in Camden, as well as the inmate population. As well as wards for the generally infirm and sick wards, there were wards for people suffering from mental illness. So let's meet the doctors, nurses and ward superintendents who treated patients at St Pancras Workhouse in the second half of the 19th century. Dr Walter Dunlop, the medical officer. Let's start with Dr Walter Dunlop, who was the medical officer at St Pancras Workhouse. According to the 1881 census, he was 30 years old and lived at the workhouse with his wife Barbara and daughters Lita and Ada. He was in charge of medical care and would have done most diagnosis and prescribing. We can hear directly from Walter through a rather unusual source, his testimony in criminal trials. We hear from him and other people working in the workhouse in situations where the victim or assailant were injured or unwell. These people were frequently brought to the St Pancras Workhouse Infirmary. Walter then gives his account of treatment and opinion on the cause of injury. On 30th of April 1888, a Charles Latham is seen by an assistant to the parish doctor, who orders he is taken to the workhouse. Charles was suffering from severe alcohol withdrawal, otherwise known as delirium tremens and Walter describes how he saw the patient when he arrived and then sent him to stay in what was called the insane ward to recover. While his specific treatment isn't described, Walter does say that from the 2nd of May onwards, his conduct was good, he worked scrubbing the floor, and he assisted the helpless patients. The 1865 Lancet article describes these wards as mostly light and airy, and praised the nurses but criticised the lack of outdoor area for exercising. Getting patients to help with the running of the wards wasn't unusual. As we've already discussed, 
In many infirmaries, patients or inmates ran the wards until the late 19th century. Charles asked to be discharged on the 5th of May, and Walter kept him until the 7th of May. Charles was on trial for murder, and Walter also gave evidence about Charles's future risk. In his opinion, he said, if he took to excessive drinking, after that he would be liable to a sudden return of delirium tremens, and if so, his state of mind might be such that he would not fully appreciate the nature of the act he did. It's clear that Walter wasn't just diagnosing and monitoring illness here. He was giving professional opinion about the risk of his patient to the public. In contrast, on the 8th of November 1883, a man called Quillan arrived at the workhouse suffering from a soft swelling about the size of a man's fist over his left jaw. Walter describes how he couldn't move his jaw or chew and had to be fed. Quillan's treatment wasn't described further but Walter says he has attended the man until he died on the 24th of November. Walter then performed the autopsy and found that the left jawbone was completely fractured. An abscess had formed around the fracture, which corroded into the artery, and the cause of death was the bursting of this artery. He also found to have been suffering from blood poisoning. This highlights the shortcomings of healthcare at this time. It isn't clear why there was no described attempt to fix the jaw, whether it was beyond medicine at the time or if the workhouse infirmary had limited care. Certainly with one doctor for such a large number of patients, it would have been difficult for Walter to keep a close eye on all of his patients and offer consistently high levels of care. These two examples also show the breadth of work required of the workhouse medical officer. Walter was giving evidence in these trials from 1879 to 1902 and so must have worked in the role for at least 23 years. In that time, he would have often had over a thousand patients in his care, ranging from serious physical injuries to mental health crises and infectious illnesses that we haven't even covered here. And as the example of Quinlan shows, he was even performing autopsies. If Walter had such a varied role, what were the responsibilities and duties of the rest of the medical team? Elizabeth Swinsco and Annie Taff, the medical staff. Medical officers like Walter weren't on their own. They were supported by a staff that also provided a lot of care. Split into superintendents and nurses, the 1881 census shows that Walter had a staff of 15. The census gives us loads of incredible information about the range of people who have ended up working in the workhouse infirmaries. Most of the staff were fairly local, but a few came from Scotland, including an aptly named Elizabeth Hamlet. A James Reed came from Ireland, and the 28-year-old unmarried Emma Stevens, who worked as a nurse, is listed as a British subject, which usually means they came from outside the UK, in a country that was part of the British Empire. Most of the medical staff were women, with only three men, including Walter. Providing medical care at the workhouse infirmaries was clearly an important source of work for women of all ages, and they could get real responsibility in these roles. They ranged from the 21-year-old Elizabeth Hamlet, who was a nurse, to the 59-year-old Elizabeth Powley, who worked as a ward superintendent. The money from these jobs could offer some independence or additional money for their household. 
of the women in the 1881 census, two were married, five were widowed, and six were unmarried. They also occasionally turn up giving evidence in these criminal trials, so we can hear directly from them too. On the 28th of February, 1873, a baby was brought to the workhouse, and it was first seen by Elizabeth Swinscoe, who was a superintendent of the receiving ward. Elizabeth is still working in the same role in the 1881 census, and gives testimony in another trial in 1887. She is clearly a long-serving member of staff. So she changed the baby girl into workhouse clothing and sent her to the children's sick ward. Annie Tapp then started looking after the baby, who was given the name Mary Albany, based on the street where the child was found. According to Annie, the child was very ill. I gave it a bath and applied poultices to the chest and back, and it was handed over to the doctor. Poultices were commonly used as a treatment in the Victorian period and could be made of things like bread and flax seeds. Whatever moist, paste-like mixture was used, it could be heated and held against the body with cloth or bandages. The mixture was thought to retain heat well and the heat, along with any herbs that were added, were believed to have a soothing effect. The medical officer at the time, a Joseph Hill, saw that Mary was having difficulty breathing and was suffering from an inflammation to the lining of the membrane of the eyelids. He estimated that she was about 10 to 14 days old and believed that her lungs were congested and inflamed. He isn't recorded as giving Mary any additional treatment beyond the poultices that were already applied. Annie continued to care for Mary in the children's sick ward and was one of the nurses that breastfed her. However, sadly, Mary died just two weeks later. This sad tale does give us some insight into the workhouse wards and how the medical staff operated. Patients were brought into a receiving ward and Elizabeth was the first person to see them. Despite being given no formal medical training, she would have needed to assess the patients that arrived and decide which ward to send them to and how urgently they needed to see the doctor. As Annie gave the baby a bath and applied poultices before going to the doctor, it clearly wasn't judged to be as urgent. Annie too was making independent decisions, applying the poultices without consulting with the doctor. Additionally, the fact they gave this ill baby a name, even when it died so quickly, shows that at least in this workhouse infirmary, there was some genuine care for patients. Several workhouses, including St Pancras at certain times, had awful conditions for inmates, and this disregard could spread into the type of healthcare provided. However, it seems clear that the medical care at St Pancras Workhouse was valued and hugely important in the Camden area. The parish doctor and police frequently sent their patients over to the workhouse as the go-to provider. While giving evidence at another trial, John Thompson, a surgeon, recounts taking a man bleeding profusely from his lip to the workhouse and working with a medical doctor to tie arteries and allow the man to recover. These medical staff were listed as residents of the workhouse in the 1881 census. So they didn't just do their job in these buildings, they lived there. They treated a huge range of illnesses with limited staff and techniques. We don't know what they were paid or what their living conditions were like, but they had the opportunity to enter in more senior roles and hold real responsibility. The end of the workhouse.
1929, the Local Government Act allowed workhouses to be turned into institutions like hospitals. And given that St Pancras was already a major healthcare provider, it too became a hospital. Part of the hospital was damaged during bombing in World War II, and so some of the buildings were demolished, including the first part of the workhouse to be built that we toured at the beginning of this audiobook. New buildings were built on top, and today these are being replaced by Oriel, a state-of-the-art eye care research and education centre. Oriel is the joint initiative between Moorfields Eye Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust, the UCL Institute of Ophthalmology and Moorfields Eye Charity, that will see services move from their current premises near Old Street, Islington, to a new integrated centre on the St Pancras Hospital site in Camden. Construction has started on the new centre, which is due to open in 2027. Ahead of construction, molar archaeologists excavated to find what remained of the workhouse buildings that had been demolished in the 1940s. They discovered walls over a metre high in places and several areas with intact floors. They found institutional crockery stamped with an image of St Pancras and the words Guardians of the Poor, St Pancras Middlesex. These are the plates that would have been used by inmates, patients and probably the medical staff we've talked about. Medical Officer Walter Dunlop, Ward Superintendent Elizabeth Swinscoe, Nurse Annie Taff, and so many more. To find out more about Oriel, visit oriel-london.org.uk. To learn more about what excavations of St Pancras Workhouse have discovered, go to mola.org.uk. This has been a Mola production on behalf of Oriel.